Today we're going to take a look at Lord's Day 2 and 3. We are not always going to be looking at only one Lord's Day as we go through because sometimes two days together really make a whole lesson. And what we are doing is we are starting on the first part of the catechism, that is our misery. You may remember last week, and I'm sure you remember everything I said last week. We looked at the uh, overview. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That is, what is the ultimate comfort? The comfort that will outlast everything else. For in our day and age, we like to have the comfort of a home, of clothing, of food, of friends, of family. But you know, none of those last. I've never seen a funeral where there's been a hearse pulling a U-Haul. I've seen a hearse pull a U-Haul, but never in a funeral. Because we take nothing with us. And if your comfort is in those kind of things, it is not your only comfort. It will not last. It, they won't really last in life, and especially when you reach the time of your death. And so the Puritans and the early Reformers had this great move of making sure that their people learned how to die well. Confident, assurance that their Savior had died for them, that the Heavenly Father was taking care of them, and the Holy Spirit had sealed them for their eternal reward. And that is basically the first question. The second question divides the catechism into three parts. Into misery, into salvation, and into gratitude. Our key verse for this time is from 2 Thessalonians 3.3. 3 where Paul, in a section where he says, pray for us, reminds his readers of this. But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one, or against evil. And the catechism is to, to do especially that. It established, that is set the correct direction. That's what that word establish means. And to guard you, like a soldier guards a prisoner of war and the instructions of the catechism and the instructions of the scripture is meant to give you the right direction and then guard you from getting off the path that's what we're here or as J.I. Packer said the catechism is the church's ministry of grounding and growing God's people in the gospel and its implication for doctrine devotion duty and delight it's that fourth one you have to remember because often as the Christian faith has been uh, maligned, they say, oh, it's a dreary faith. God is a killjoy who wants to make sure you don't enjoy anything. Actually, God is the one who wants you to joy, enjoy everything so that your life is a life of delight, of joy. So when you walk around the mall, and you see these people with very heavy faces, your face shines because you know Christ. And that's your life. Okay? That's what we're looking for. Um, that's what we're trying to focus in on. And now we go to the first se selection uh, or section which has to do with our misery. 
the question we ask is, why does the catechism start here? Why not just go right into the gospel? Well, if you go to a jeweler's and you want to get that beautiful engagement or wedding ring or ring for somebody else, you ask them to show you a diamond. And they bring up that diamond, and do they go like this? No, they put it on black velvet. Because in the background of the black velvet, that diamond shines, and it looks so great. And they, they shine it up, and they make sure it looks pretty. And they have a little light in the ceiling that comes down so that all the light is refracted. But it's because of that black background. You want to know why you delight in Christ? You have to first of all see the perilous condition in which we live. And you have to see the misery of our lives. Such a, such a foreign concept to our day and age. What's evangelism today? God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And rarely deals with the misery in which you find yourself. And so you wonder, well, if God loves me, he has a wonderful plan for my life. Why do I even have to think about salvation or Christ or anything? It's already set. So the catechism begins exactly where we need is we need to see our dilemma and recognize our need. You can see this out of uh, Psalm 130. Last week uh, when John talked about it, out of the depths I cry to you. That's a, that's a, a sea a seagoing term, out of the depths. And you realize Israel never had a navy. It hated the sea. The sea was chaos. The sea was danger. Just ask Jonah, having to be cast over in the midst of a storm. Or you could go to what we're going to think about today in Palm Sunday. There's Jesus in Luke 19, into the triumphal entry. He's coming up the hill, ready to crest the hill to go down into the city where they are going to applaud him as the king because he's going to come in as an Old Testament king, as Zechariah told him. And he gets to the crest of the hill and it says, he wept over it saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. And if you go down, they, they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. That word visitation is when the general comes to inspect the troops. And when they say attention, they all get it to attention. And he goes up and down the roads and he sees all that there is there in the camp. And he's there to check off whether it's good or bad. Here Jesus comes to Jerusalem. And say, you're missing, here, here your God is in the midst of you, visiting you, checking you out, and you fail miserably. You see, when we look, take a look at God and God looking at us, it's not God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. It begins with, we fail miserably. And that's what these two days are getting at. So, From where do we know your misery? Oop. 
law is our reminder of our need and our problem. It comes from the law of God. Uh, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Want to know why in our culture they do a tremendous job of trying to get rid of God? Either materialism or a materialistic universe or evolution. Because if you have a God who is your creator and he has created you, you are responsible to him. And if you're responsible to him, everything you say and do, he will judge. And sometimes we don't think that's too bad until you really see the depth of the law. Question four defines what the law requires. What does the law of God require us? Look at the answer. Christ teaches us in sum, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and prophets. I find it interesting that where they go when they talk about the law is not the Ten Commandments. They don't say, well, let's read the Pentateuch because that will show you the law of God. They go to the summary of the law. And the summary of the law is love. Boy, does that do a job with those who think the Old Testament God is a God of hatred. Or an Old Testament God is a God who wants to pounce you on the head. He gives you the law and he states the law in such a way that you get to see love. You are to love your God with all your heart, mind, body. And another passage says, and strength. Now the word strength, we think, mm, Arnold Schwarzenegger. You know, Mr. Universe. Or, actually, the word means muchness. You are to love him with all of your muchness, everything you have. If heart, mind, body weren't enough, it says everything you have, you are anything out. For instance, your finances, you are called to love God with your finances. You are called to be obedient, and tithing is an act of love. It's not an act of saying, oh man, do I have to do this? I have met church members who have gone through that. In fact, I had a couple church members who left one of the congregation I served because, you mean I have to tithe? I can't do that. I says, yeah, it's very simple. The, law, the scripture tells you and God says he will supply the needs that you have. And out the door they left. 10% off the top, you can do it. In fact, you can give 10% off the top to the church. You can give 10% into your savings for the future. And then you have 80% to live with. It just means if you're going to love God that way, you need to reorder how you spend the other 80%. And in a day and age where Burger King rules, have it your way, we don't like to do that. But that's what love is. Love to uh, your spouse, love to someone in your family. It's, I will give you 
and I will do for you whatever I can that's not illegal or immoral. And I will help you, even if it hurts me. So when we say put five bucks in the envelope, put five bucks in the envelope. And if you can afford 10, 20, 50, 100, 1,000, if you can afford 1,000, please see me. (laughs) (laughs) If you can afford even more, put it in generosity. In fact, extravagant generosity is one of the pictures of what the church is all about. So, he summarizes it with that of love. And actually, if you look at it, all the Old Testament is a love book. Why did they get rid of the people when they came into the promised land? Because God knew they would corrupt them from their worship. Why did you stone people who uh, broke the commandment about adultery? Because that's in such a, that's infesting, and that's changing the whole culture. Look at what we have around us. Love says, I'm going to do what God wants me to do. And love says, I'm going to do that which is good for my neighbor. Love your neighbor, what is it? As yourself. How do we love ourselves? I don't know. Excuse me? extravagantly you got it we pamper ourselves how many of you did not take a shower this morning go downstairs no (laughs) we take care of ourselves we pamper we we buy what we need and sometimes many times what we want and then that's how we're supposed to deal with our neighbor Think about the person who lives across the street or next to you, down the road. Think about the person who lives in Africa who has barely any little. You love by pampering and providing for them. That's what the law says. And that's how you show your love. Uh, That's where this law is going. Question number five. Can you keep this perfectly? That is, it drives home the point about what we do horribly because we do not keep this perfectly. We don't even keep it close. The answer is this, no. And you should, probably in your book you ought to put a whole lot of exclamation points after that. No should be in capital letters. But they weren't in the second, second decade of the 21st century. I am prone by nature to hate God and my neighbor. And that sounds so ridiculous in the 21st century. We are not prone to hate God or our neighbor. We love our neighbor until they cut down the tree that we love. (laughs) We love other people when we drive until they cut in front of us. Okay? We love until it comes up against who we are and what we want. And we are so prone to hate God. There's none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one for all sin and fall short of the glory of God. 
it's that term good that tricks us up. Good is a relative term. We have Tally the Wonder Dog. Tally the Wonder Dog is a good dog. That means she sits when we tell her to sit. She does her tricks when she knows there's a treat. She goes outside to go to the bathroom. She doesn't go in our bedroom or the bathroom or the living room. And when she was very young, she went on the papers and she learned quickly how to go out. We have good children. Does that mean they sit when we tell them to sit? They obeyed when we give them treats and they go outside to go to the bathroom? No, it's relative to the level of animal life between a cat and our children or any one of you. Take that one step forward. God is good. He's perfect. Is our goodness anything close to his? No. No. Not anywhere near who he is. That's because we are prone to evil, to hate God and people. You say, well, I don't know how you could say that I hate God. How can you actually talk anything about that? Well, this morning, was every thought that you had this morning filled with God and thinking about God? No, when I got up, I was thinking of a cup of coffee and three eggs with toast. Okay? Is your every thought about your neighbor? You see, when you do not think about them and you do not think about God, it shows that you do not love him in the fullness of what you are called to love. God loves us. That means he's thinking about us all the time, if we can put it in human language. But that's not the way we are to God. And we are prone to do that which we do not want to do. Prime example comes from the life of Augustine. Or Augustine. I'm sorry. Augustine is a city in Florida. Augustine is a saint. Augustine led a profligate life. He ran after women. He sired children. He did anything he could. He did anything he wanted. He drove his saintly mother crazy who would pray for him hours at a day because he was such a rebel. And then he came to Christ. You know what led him to Christ? He remembered a time when he was a teenager. He and his fellow friends were out one night, late at night, walking down the street. And they decided to jump the fence, go in and rob some pears and take them out. And then he looks and said, I did it. And I hate pears. I didn't want to eat them. I didn't want anything to do with them. And he said, that's exactly the way I am. I think anyone who is serious about looking at themselves will look at the big things in their life and say, yeah, I did those things. But what will get you is when you look at the things you didn't have to do, but you did. It's those little things. In my own life, when I was in the process of coming to Christ and reading the scriptures, 
God would remind me of the little things I did, like steal money from my mom to buy a little matchbox car. I didn't have to steal. She would have given it to me. She was that generous. Of lies that I had told or things that I had messed up. And little things, tiny things, almost insignificant things. And it was those things the Spirit used to convict me that I am in need of a Savior. That shows you how prone you are to become in need of a Savior and the misery of your life because that is the very nature and direction of who we are. Did God make us this way? Again, the answer is a resounding no. He created us in perfect capac with capacities to know him, to love him, to live in his presence, and to glorify him. Again, if we had time, we could go back to Genesis 3, or to 1, 2, and 3. Uh, and if, since we don't have time, you can go up to Toledo to the Table Fellowship Conference and get some good studies on that. You take a look at it and you see a pristine, perfect park, paradise in which they lived. Had everything that they wanted. And yet in Genesis 3, they decide to disobey the one commandment God had told them not to do. Don't eat from the tree. And I dare say it was not an apple that was the fruit of the tree. It never says what it was. I think... It was an orange, because I don't like oranges. <laughs> okay? But the idea is one thing. And when Adam ate, and notice, it is always Adam who is blamed, never Eve. It says a lot about not only what was done, but it gets your women off the hook. Now, you, did, you were deceived, and you did tempt Adam to do it. But it was Adam's fault because he had heard directly the word of God and knew he wasn't supposed to do it. And he fell. And with him, because he is the federal head, that is, he represented all humankind. All humankind fell with him. It didn't take very long to see the effects of the fall. Adam looked at Eve. Eve looked at Adam and said, we're naked. And they were ashamed. And they tried to cover themselves. God comes walking in the night in, into the garden in the cool of the evening and they try to hide from him where before they welcomed their time to be in his presence. He says, what have you eaten from the tree? And all of a sudden, blame shifting is all around. The serpent made me, the serpent tempted me and made me do it. This woman whom you, God, gave to me, this woman, that's, it's yours, she led me to fall. See what happens? They have two children. First two, Abel and Cain. And murder breaks out. It's, it, it begins to accelerate and accelerate. And every generation, every person has this propensity, proneness to sin. Even though God did not make us this way. He created us perfect. As, saw, as uh, 
David says in Psalm 51, 5, on page what the, yeah, 24. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Now, he's not talking that his mother did something immoral to, conceive, to create him. It's simply, it's passed down generation to generation. Not because they had sex, which is one way some people like to define this. You don't have sex because that's how this impropriety happens. No. It's just part of the basic human nature. It's also one of the reasons why the Savior had to be born of a virgin. So that there was not this propensity, this proneness to sin that would be within him. He wasn't conceived in sin. That is, shows us that, as the next one says, Psalm 14, 2-3, they have all turned aside, they have together become corrupt. There is none who does good, no, not one. See, this is how bad it really is. And this is how bad we have to, this is what we have to deal with. We are nat by nature corrupt. Is it really that bad? Yep. I, I'm, I probably am sugarcoating how bad it is. Out of the Reformation came this little acronym called TULIP, coming from the Council of Dort, which is a Dutch council and therefore they use the word tulip because they're Dutch the tulips are there the first letter means total depravity the word total now when you hear it what do you think about myself okay yeah <laughs> We use, sometimes people hear that and say, oh, we're not that bad. It's not total. We're not as bad as we possibly could be. We're a whole lot better than our neighbor. And we're not as bad as Hitler and Stalin. You know, we're not as good as Mother Teresa and Billy Graham had it all over us and, you know, all these saints before us. Now, the word total does not mean you are as bad as you possibly could be. What it means is that every area of your body, every area of who you are, is corrupted. It is depraved. You don't think the way you ought to. You don't speak the way you ought to. The core of who you are is not centered the way it ought to be. You do not do what you ought to do. Every area and all of your muchness, your strength, is not focused the way it ought to be. You need some illustrations of that. Well, just look at yourself and you'll see it. The very, as Paul said, the very things I want to do, I do not do. And the very things I do not do, this is what I do. I call it the do-do principle. <laughs> you cannot help but do what you don't want to do. That's where grace comes in. His unmerited favor toward you. If we allowed it to reign, it would make us really horrible people. 
Why don't you do some of the things you do? It's basically because of the boundaries that are put around us. Peg and I were out on the highway for about five hours last night. I love watching other cars. There's this guy in this little yellow, it's not a bug, but it looked like a bug. It looked like, a, it looked like an insect. It was so small. He's going at least 80, 90 miles an hour until he gets over the top of the hill. And all of a sudden the red lights come on because there's a policeman halfway down the hill and he doesn't want to get a speeding ticket. Why didn't you think about that when you passed me at 90 miles an hour and I barely saw you in the rearview mirror and then poof, you're gone. No, he just didn't want a ticket. Why don't we do some of the things we would love to do? If we got caught, it's embarrassing. It's humbling. And we may be put in jail. And the last place we want to be is in jail. You know where I, uh, we do, some things we do, we want approval of other people. The gang's doing it, so we step in and do it. You know where I see this idea of total depravity and of being conceived in sin? Little children, babies, about four or five months old. They're done being breastfed, and now it's time to feed them from those little jars of Gerber's squished, squashed peas. You notice they never have squished, squashed broccoli. You open it up, put the spoon in. First word that a child learns probably is mommy. The second word is daddy, maybe the other way around. But when you put that spoon in and you start to move it toward the mouth, they learn their third word. No. 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 I don't want that. No. And so we play games. Here's the airplane. It's coming into the hangar. Open up the hangar. Here's a train coming down the tracks into the tunnel. And they still go, no. <laughs> Kid, it's good for you. It'll build you up. You'll become strong. No. That was not learned. That is just inside of every one of us. I have hesitated to get into the second decade of the 21st century. Why? No. I don't want to learn this stuff. I don't want to have to understand all this stuff. But that's, you see, that shows not only our proneness, but it really is that bad. And in our culture, it's very difficult to get that concept out. Remember when I talked about the... Um, ancient councils, and I gave you three primary positions about human beings. I know you remember this. Why am I repeating it? I don't know. There's Pelagian, who basically said all people are good. It's the environment that corrupts them. Where have you heard that? That's our culture. You're all good people. And if we only had better schools and more money and got rid of guns or whatever it is, you know, you guys would be perfect and beautiful people. And it never works. We get better schools, we get better economies, we get better environments, and the people stay the same. 
that was considered heresy. Semi-Pelagian. That is, well, you're not that good, but you're not totally evil. You're sick, desperately sick. You are only one breath away from rejecting God and from dying, but you still have that breath. And if you in and of yourself take that breath and receive Jesus Christ, you shall be saved because you can do it. This one says, you guys are perfect. This guy says, this one says, you're almost there. Just believe. That's modern day evangelicalism. Remember the phrase? God's voted for you. The devil's voted for you. You cast the deciding vote. In a semi-plagialist, in that second one, it says you have the ability to decide that second vote. It's the last one that has been the one of the church throughout the centuries and especially refound in the Reformation and that is Augustinian. We are dead in trespasses and sins. Sounds like Ephesians 2, right? We are dead. Dead people don't make decisions. Dead people have lost the ability to choose. And that's how really bad it is. And that's why we are in this great misery. If you recognize that, and if you see, as not only as the scripture tells you, but your own life will tell you, that that's true of you. And you ponder that. You realize how far you are away from God. It's not like, you know, I'm somewhat close. Or, I'm just teetering on the edge. It's, you have no hope at all. There's nothing you can do. And that is why it's really bad. That brings us to the question, what does one need to counter this? And that's a question number nine. In the, excuse me, question number eight. We are so deprived, depraved and deprived of any ability to, to do good. We are depraved that we are completely incapable of any good and prone to, any, to all evil. And that is our fate. That's where we are. And so the answer is yes, unless... We are born again by the Spirit of God. If you're dead, you need to be resurrected. Lazarus was dead four days in the tomb. He stunk, or as the King James say, he stinketh. I love that phrase. That's the only phrase out of the King James I love. No, that's not quite sure. He stinketh. And Christ had to say at the, at the front entrance of the tomb, Lazarus, come forth. Now remember, he called him by his name. Otherwise, everyone would have come forth. Lazarus, come forth. And the dead 
was given life. I've always thought Lazarus said, well, I thank you for give, bringing me back. But Lord, it was so much fun for four days. It was so great. But he was brought back. We need to be resurrected. We need to be born from above. This is what Jesus said to the teacher of Israel. That's how he calls Nicodemus. You are the teacher. You're the top teacher. You must you, of necessity, must be born again. And of course, Nicodemus comes out with that beautiful response. How can this be? Can I enter my mother's womb a second time and be born? And Jesus said, no, no, no. Don't you, you know the Old Testament. You know Ezekiel 36? You know the promise of the covenant? I will sprinkle clean water upon you. That is, I will forgive you. I will give, I will raise you, I will give to you the Spirit, I will remake the covenant. You see what I'm talking about, Nicodemus? You have to be born from above. You cannot exist in your natural way and be pleasing to God. And so the Spirit comes. The Spirit comes to convict you of your sin. You do, and, and again, I say, it's the little things. Why did you do that? Why did you think that? Why? And it's like little needles in you again and again. Why? Doesn't that show you something about yourself? He comes to convert you. That is to change your basic nature. To make you a new person. Because the old nature is leading you to a, the wrong path. You're prone to to hate God and people. He's going to give you a new nature that is prone to love God and to love people. He is conferring upon you faith after he has regenerated you. Because before, without regeneration, you couldn't believe. Oh, you believe your car would start in the morning and you believe the toaster would make a great piece of toast and you believe that you will have a job tomorrow. But... You have no ability to believe in the only hope that you have, and that's Jesus Christ, until he has changed your basic nature and then given you that faith to believe. And then he changes you from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his son, Colossians 1, 13 to 14. He has transferred you from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his son. Suppose, for instance, and this is only for instance, this is the domain of darkness. Yeah, I may be closer to the truth than I thought. <laughs> this is the domain of darkness, and this is a kingdom of light. What God does is he takes you and he picks you up, and he carries you across, and he puts you over here, and now you have a new home. Because while you were over here, you were so prone to evil, you were so dedicated to hate God and people, he had to take you out, move you over here. He had to establish you, that is, give you a new direction in life, and he had to guard that direction from evil and from the evil one. That's what he does. And therefore... The catechism told us exactly that. Catechism 
drives home. We need to acknowledge our helplessness until the Holy Spirit changes us. It's not up to us, it's up to the Holy Spirit. Therefore, you cry out to God, out of the depths, O Lord, I cry unto you. If you should mark iniquity, who could stand? And you personalize it. I can't stand as long as you mark iniquity. But with you, there is plenteous redemption and abundance, an overabundance of grace. And you know your helplessness. You know our, your misery without the Spirit's transfer and transformation. I am, you, you kind of look at yourself and say, I am the most miserable of all creatures. Why? Because I'm not the way God meant me to be. I am not who he wants me to be. And I can't do anything about it. And then you discover the beginning of the blessedness with the Spirit's work. After he's done his work. That's what these first two days drive us to think about. And it drives us to the Savior. No one except he is born again by the Spirit of God can enter into the kingdom of God. So the question is, have you been born by the Spirit from above? Are you trusting on being a church member or having been a church member a long time? Are you trusting in your own goodness and your own strength? Are you trusting that you can do this alone? Or are you trusting that the Spirit has to change you and has to make you that new person you have to be? This is what you see in the Word. This, in a night in August of 1969, I recognized, though I'd been a church member and had joined a church, and I was in the youth group, and I led a pretty good life, relatively. All of a sudden, going through the Gospels and looking at the perfect person of Christ, and then finally into Romans and being dissected by that word that Paul gave, that there is no none who are righteous, no, not one. The Spirit kept pounding it home to me. You are not good. You need a Savior. And one night when I was reading the 10th chapter, he reminded me, it's all those who call on the name of Jesus shall be saved. Have you done that? That's what the beginning of misery calls you to do. Come to Christ because Christ first of all has come to you and changed you if you're not that way you're still living in misery no matter how happy and blessed and wonderful it may be you're still living in misery and you need to be a people who take seriously not only the scriptures but the catechism and seek after the holy God who wants to transfer you from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his son. If you haven't made that kind of a choice, I, I call you to read the Gospels and get into Romans. That's the real Romans ro road. If you haven't come to Christ, talk to somebody who has. Elders, leaders, people in this congregation who have, and they'll help you explain and they'll pray with you. 
and they'll be with you to support you as you move through this decision. If you have, this is your delight. <laughs> oh, misery has gone bye-bye. I am a child of the living God, and that's my delight. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you because we are indeed people who need you more than anything else. Thank you for the boldness of the writers of this catechism to put what we don't want to hear, but what we need to hear, and face, make us come face to face with our proneness to hate you, Lord God, and our neighbors, and therefore even to hate ourselves. Grant, O oh Lord, to anyone here who does not know you a move of the Spirit to convict them of their sin, convince them that Christ is Savior, to convert them so that they may then come to believe and confirm to them that they are now transferred from one kingdom, one realm into your kingdom and that they indeed are yours. I pray, O oh Lord, that you also would take your Spirit and cement anything that has been said that is from you and your word into our hearts and minds that we may remember it and that you would draw it out in the moment when we need it the most for your honor and glory and for the sake of our relationship with you. For we ask it all in Jesus' name and everyone said, Amen. Amen.